Last week we began looking at the not yet fulfilled prophecies. I began what I expect to be a, a short series of hope by looking at prophecies which were written to exiles who had been displaced from their homeland because of the rebellion against God. That's the context of the book of Isaiah. Chapter 40 starts this new section of hope, of comfort. 1 through 39 is this despairing, here's what's going to happen. We end in 39 with this destruction and the falling of, of Jerusalem. And Isaiah shifts, writing prophetically of the future, to an exiled people who were displaced because of their rebellion. Personalize that. We are a displaced people. We have been exiled from our homeland. We talked in Sunday school this morning that this is not our home. We're going to a home. He's preparing a home for us. We're not yet there, but we're actually exiled. We're sojourners in a foreign land looking for our future home. And, and this is how we're going to apply the word to us, that we would be comforted, is that even though we're not yet in our homeland, God says, I'm going to give you comfort in the midst of exile. I'm going to bring you peace. I'm going to wrap you with joy and comfort. There's going to be things you can celebrate even though you're in a foreign land. So we're trying to personalize this. Here's the verse, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The word of our God, the word of my God, the word of Yahweh God, my God. Curtis just said, my God personalize him. He's your Yahweh. The word of that God, our God, endures forever. It stands forever. Nothing's going to take it away. The goal is that we would find application of this verse in our lives, that we would receive hope from God too, for we really are no different than the people of Israel. We are exiles in a foreign land. We too are strangers and aliens on earth. We have been separated from our former fellowship. You think to the garden. We had fellowship, union with God. Adam and Eve, they ate of the fruit, they were deceived. Guess what? There was a separation that took place from the presence of God. God kicked them out of the garden, said, no longer can you be with me. What have you done? And so now we are, we are displaced people. We were in that garden of Eden where we could be and walk with God in the cool of the day. We've been separated we, because of our rebellion personalize that sin too. Yes, you would have done the same thing and eaten of the fruit. If not, you're arrogant. Humble yourself before God Almighty. Say, yes, Lord, I have sinned. I may not have eaten of that fruit that day, but I know I would have, and I know I've done a whole lot of things a lot worse than that. We've all disobeyed God. But because of the hardness of our hearts, he kicked us out of the garden. But guess what? He says, I'm going to give you promise of hope and comfort and grace and peace and mercy and joy and exaltation that in the future, guess what? I'm coming back for you. I've got some words that are not yet done. So grab hold of your brother, your sister in Christ and say, come near and hear the words of God for the word of God will endure forever. Selah. Now, by way of review or quick introduction for those that were not with us last week, there were two primary lessons that we got from this verse. And number one, in order to properly receive comfort from God, we need to humble ourselves before Him. The grass fades. What is the grass? We are. Verse 6 and 7 of Isaiah 40. Oh, surely the people are grass. That is us. We fade. That's not the message of comfort. Hang with me. 
What are we before God? Nothing but grass. I was mowing here at the church yesterday. I was mowing through some tall grass in the back. It's about, I don't know, two feet tall. You look out over five acres of unmown grass, millions and millions of countless blades falling prey to the mower blades. Lopping them off just above the root. That's what we are. We're just in the grand scheme of things, a blade of grass in a sea in a field. We have to humble ourselves. And uncomfortable as that may be, we need to remind ourselves of how small and insignificant we are, how frail life is. And just get that into your spirit, man. That in light of the frailness of life and how short it is, that's what we're the backdrop for which we are saying the word of God stands forever. Your life is but a piece of grass, frail. It's going to wither up and fade. Some of you are thinking, man, that's a whole lot closer than I want it to be. Right? Can I get an amen? amen. Yeah. I'm still in that invincible age, right? That's what I, my, all my elders are telling me. You don't know nothing yet. You're going to blink and it'll be gone. <laughs> Do you know, God's words cannot be unspoken. They cannot be broken. They cannot fail. That's the second point is the grass fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That's the second lesson. God's word is eternal. And that's the purpose of this lesson is that we would hope in the certainty of God's spoken words, that we would take refuge and comfort in those things that he told us are going to happen. There's lots of things in this word that are gonna, they're still yet to happen. And we could take comfort and solace in them. Oh, that we could get it into our spirit, man. God's words cannot be unspoken. They cannot be erased. They cannot be forgotten. They cannot fail. And with those two lessons in the backs of our mind, last week we looked at three important truths about the words of, word of God. We could have done a lot of these things, but just by a quick reminder, there were three that I gave you. A, his word will not return empty or void. B, his word will not perish. It is eternal. And C, it will not fail. And I hope that the purpose of these three things that we went over were not lost in the teaching. These were intended to increase our faith and build our confidence in the Word of God. Here's the reason I gave these three. A, His Word will not return empty or void. There are situations and times where we preach the gospel, as we should, where we don't see the fruit of it. And sometimes we get a little discouraged, don't we, if we're not careful. We say, oh, but I didn't see any success. What's the point of doing this anymore? Why am I going to go do this and pray for that person? Why am I going to share the, the good news of Jesus Christ and put myself out there? That was embarrassing. The Word of God, listen, will not return empty. If you are obedient to God in preaching His Word, not a watered-down Word, his word, stick to the gospel of Christ Jesus. If you're sticking to the gospel of Christ Jesus and preaching it, it can't not have success. It will succeed. Everything about it will, will produce fruit. You may not see it in your lifetime. You may not see it visibly with your eyes. But if you are being obedient and preaching the word of God, it will not fail. It will not come back void. Second thing, the other encouragement that we can find in his word is that it will not perish. It is eternal. There's a quality about his verse, or about his word. And this deals with the revelation and reminder that the gospel of Christ Jesus, salvation, 
is as sure as the words of Yahweh God. Now we know that Jesus is God. But how often do we see those red letter words and hold them in the same weight as the word of God? Yeah, Jesus was a man. Sure. But it's Peter that equated this. And we went to uh, Peter and we looked at how he quoted this verse in Isaiah 40 verse 8. He quoted it and he writes that, that your gospel is imperishable. The gospel which you received, it cannot perish. And when, he, and when he writes that, he actually writes and he translates this in Greek. He says, it's the rhema of our Lord. It's the freshly spoken word of God that will not perish. And he equates it with this word of God, the word of Yahweh in the previous verses. Now, this is that we ought to understand that we have a, a sureness in our salvation. That when Jesus is speaking to the gospel, and, it, and that includes, or in speaking to his disciples, and that includes to us, that we must apply with the same level of conviction salvation, we must apply it with the same level of conviction as Abraham did with his son Isaac. Okay, Lord, I believe. I, I don't know how, God, but I know that if I put myself out there, if I take my son over to the altar, somehow you are going to fulfill your word of promise that in my name all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's conviction. His word will not perish. And that's the same way we ought to view our salvation, is with that same level of conviction. You see, a promise means nothing if it's not reliable. And if we can't know for sure that according to the word of God, if we do these things, that we are saved, then really his word is not reliable, and that's the point. We must know that we are saved because the words of Christ are imperishable. Because of this, we have comfort. We have comfort as exiles and strangers, knowing that if we simply confess with our mouth and believe in Christ Jesus as Lord, that we too are saved. If we repent of our sins, we cast them on Him. As far as the east is from the west, He removes our transgressions from us. And we have to have certainty of those things. That's what salvation is. And that's how we get our comfort from the Word of God that will not perish. It is an imperishable gospel. We trust in Him, our future salvation, because His Word has never failed. It cannot fail, and it therefore never will fail. And that leads us to the last one. I know I'm doing these out of order, but C, really B from last week, if you're looking back at your notes, was every word in the Bible will come to pass. And this third one has to do with the unfulfilled words of God. And that's where I would like us to obtain encouragement and comfort. As we've looked at, or as you could look back at all of the fulfilled promises, and we don't have time, that's really the word of God. There's so many things that are fulfilled. King Cyrus and David and Abraham. I mean, just pick a name. There's probably a prophecy that was spoken about them at some point in time that had been fulfilled. We take encouragement from the Word of God, knowing those things took place and happened, and now we apply these future things that we know have not yet been fulfilled and say, I know with a shadow of doubt in my mind because God has not yet failed that these things will come to pass. And that's what we're looking at in this series. Those not yet fulfilled things, that's where we're headed this morning. Perhaps the first of three teachings of unfulfilled prophecies that were written to us for our comfort. You could turn to Matthew chapter 24. If you've got your Bibles, if you don't, there's one in the seat in front of you. 
phone, whatever makes you feel comfortable. In Matthew 28, chapter, six, or chapter 28, verse 6, the angel of the Lord, after Jesus was missing from the tomb, the women come down to the tomb, and they're going to anoint him with spices and make him smell a little better and preserve his body, right? And they go down, and they find what? He's empty. And they begin to be confused. Oh, no, what's happened to his body? What did the angel of the Lord say to them? Do you remember? He said, one of the things he said is, he is risen just as, just as he said. It, it wasn't a hitting him over the head with a two-by-four. Oh, you foolish women. How could you, how could you not realize? But, it, but there is a message there of, why didn't you believe him? Learn from this. And so, I, I would just, if we could personalize that this morning. Imagine yourself looking in on the tomb, worried that they have taken the body of your Lord, your master. The angel says to you, Julie, just as he said. What is that word? We're going to look at that in that context. Louis, just as he said. He's risen just as he said. Oh, that we would understand the just as he says of the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And in order for us to apply the not yet fulfilled words of God to our lives as formerly rebellious and displaced exiles, we need to be familiar, firstly, with the word, the prophetic word. You're not going to get comfort from unfulfilled prophecies if you don't know what they are. I know this is, that's really advanced thinking there, isn't it? Hang with me. In order to receive comfort from his unfulfilled prophecies, we need to know what they are. Do you know how much good there is in knowing the Word of God? Oh, church, I wish I knew it better. But wishful thinking is not enough to actually growing in knowledge, is it? Ted, I wish that I was a better carpenter. But simply professing it out loud is not enough to gain skills in that trade. I wish this, I wish that. Read the Word of God. Study the Word of God. One 40-minute teaching once a week is not enough to satisfy your soul, nor is it enough to prepare us for the future. And it's definitely not enough for us to live kingdom lifestyles. Get familiar with prophecy. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching. All right, we aren't studying prophecy this morning to figure out when he's coming back, but that we would build our faith in all of his words. We are looking forward to these future prophecies that we can be encouraged. Matthew 24. Um, we've got a few passages to get to this morning. That was way too long of a review. And uh, so, yeah, buckle up. Because we're... <laughs> the food can wait, matey. It'll keep. All right, good. Matthew 24, 32. We're going to start in 32. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize all these things that Jesus is, you can read them on your own time, perilous things coming, the abomination of desolation, earthquakes, famines, all these things he spoke previously in chapter Verse 33, when you see these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It sounds very similar to the word of the Lord endures forever, doesn't it? 
But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, I'm starting with this passage because I want us to understand that there's a difference between knowing when he's coming back, which we can't know, not even the Son knows or the angels, and knowing and being prepared, knowing of them and being prepared for them. There's this unfortunate thing, trend that's happened in the last, I don't know, five or six decades where people prophesy, they get a revelation from the Lord, He's coming back on this time, on this date, be prepared, right? You see the billboards, uh, I'm sure you've heard cover stories about it. The media certainly likes to cover it in sort of backhanded mockery of the church, right? They lump us all together when there's a false prophet. It's unfortunate. Nobody knows the hour. And so now there's this kind of thing where we shrink back from even trying to discern things of end times. There's a group of people that is afraid to even talk about it because we know that some people have abused that. They've abused the teachings where they say, well, God is coming back in this specific time and you better be ready. And the problem is that we aren't well versed in red in what the prophecies say. And so I want us to evaluate and understand that even though we're not looking at the specifics of when he's coming back, we could still know there's still application for us in these passages. Not knowing the specific time does not mean that we should not or cannot be ready for his return. This is the doctrine of imminence. His imminent return, it's going to happen at any moment. The disciples... The apostles, the early church, they, were prepared, they thought it was going to happen in their lifetime. Peter, Paul, James, they all write urgently about how close his return was. Jesus told them that some of you will not even sleep. They were expectantly waiting for Jesus to come back. They thought, oh, it was just, a, a, you know, God, Jesus is going to be gone for a few months, a few years. We're going to see him come back. And the exhortation is to be ready like he's coming back within the hour. That's the parable. He's, he's writing to the virgin, or he's talking about the virgins, right? Ten lamps. Five of them are ready. They got their wicks trimmed. They got extra oil. They don't even know. In any hour, their master might come back. That's how we ought to be. I wonder if we have gotten a little further ahead of God than we should. Planning our vacations, planning our retirement, planning our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. Looking ahead to the future. Oh, I got to do this before I die. Oh, I got to do this next month, next year. Oh, I got to do this, that, and the other. But I wonder if we lived expectantly and urgently like he was coming back before the day's end, if we would live radically different. That's, that's a heavy word. I didn't intend to go there. We're supposed to be comforted, right? Okay. Verse 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. See, comfort. Isn't that comforting times? (laughs) We'll get there. Hang with me. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And we don't have time, but you can go down and read through the rest of this, two in one field, two at the, one at the mill. Jesus says again, 42, therefore be on the alert. You don't know, okay? I love the King James here. It says, 
they knew not. What didn't they know? They didn't know what was happening. They didn't understand. That's verse 39. They did not understand. They know not. Who didn't know? The wicked didn't know. Who did know? Noah knew. He knew because he was expecting it. He was talking with God. You want to be expecting the things that is coming, the flood coming? Guess what? Get on the direct line of communication with God the Father. Spend some time with Him, and He's going to download things into you. Right, Curtis? Spend time with Him. You always, Curtis is always coming Wednesday nights. You guys don't uh, know this. A lot of you don't know this, but if you ever come to prayer, intercessor's prayer on Wednesday nights, you're going to get blessed with a, a, a spontaneous teaching. Brother Curtis shows up, and he's just bubbling out with the revelation that God gave him of the day or whatever it is. I love it. As you spend time with God, you just can't contain it all, right? It's just, oh, guess what God showed me today? Now, I don't, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad, but if you're not getting revelation, then you're probably, well, not spending enough time with God. Okay. I find it so convincing that Genesis 7, verse 4, we're told that Noah entered into the ark. Oftentimes we forget this. Noah entered into the ark seven days before the rain began. We, we often have these like children's animation things. They're not always the best, are they? <laughs> it's starting to rain. Quick, get to the boat! And they, they run in and God shuts the door or, you know, sometimes they don't even do that the right way, right? They're like pulling on ropes and the door closes. They're throwing some pitch and tar on it. Quick, seal it up! No. God says, I'm going to bring all the animals to you. They all get on the ark and they wait. Stinky! Seven days. Can you imagine what was going through their minds? Here you are building a boat somewhere between 50 to 80 some years. Okay? You're building a boat. God says, I want you to do this because it's going to rain. Noah's like, what's rain? It's never rained before. You mean the ocean is going to drop on my head? Yeah, basically. Build a boat. What's a boat? They work on this for decades. God says, I'm going to supernaturally... Now, that would encourage you, right, if a whole bunch of animals just kind of confirmed the word that God gave you and showed up at your door? <laughs> All right, well, some, God must have... Real, I must have... It must not have been the tacos I ate because something's going on outside. So you get into the boat. You're waiting for this supposed rain seven days before it started. I wonder if anyone started to get a little agitated at Noah. No, it stinks. What on earth are we doing? Let this marinate within your spirit. The remnant waited seven days for the word of the Lord to arrive while they were in the safety of the ark. Do you not think that God would spare us believers in the same way? Come, be caught up with me for seven years in the safety of my presence while I prepare to pour out my wrath over the entire earth for their rebellion. Seven days of waiting, seven years of tribulation. 
one of several reasons, I believe, for a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Back to the days of Noah. Imagine you're, you're there for 50, 80 years. They get inside, they're waiting for the stinky boat. It's never rained before. That's obedience. This is the doctrine of imminence. Is that I'm going to do what God's word, God has told me to do, not knowing when it's going to happen. I'm just going to obey. That's how we ought to live our lives. God, I don't know when this rain is coming. I don't even know what it looks like. But I am prepared and I'm going to obey you in the day-to-day. Help me. So we labor some, what, 80 years on earth, maybe 90, 100 if we've got really good genes. We labor for his kingdom about 80 years trying to convince people to get into the boat, don't we? Apply this to yourselves. While ready at a moment's notice to be taken into safety before God destroys the world. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We ought to learn from the people of Noah's day. That's how we are to be spared from God's wrath. We're supposed to know what's happening, but in order to know what's happening, we have to read the Word of God so that we will not be surprised. And if you read the Word of God, you're not going to be surprised when there's a new and powerful world leader or a one-world government or social credit scores or simulated economies. There's much that we ought to be on the lookout for, and all of it will come to pass just as he said. 2 Peter 3.3, mockers will come mocking. Matthew 24, 14, the gospel will be preached to the entire world. Earthquakes, pit plagues, famines, wars, Luke 21, Matthew 24. Men will be lovers of self, in money, in pleasure, they'll be boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We must know his word. And if we aren't even aware of the impending flood, then there isn't a chance that we are going to be prepared to escape it. Now, in my normal fashion, I got a little carried away there, off on a little rabbit trail, but I wanted to make the point that every word of God will come to pass. All of them are useful for us. All of them are for our instruction. But the main thrust of this series is that we look at the not-yet-fulfilled words of Christ that are spoken to a displaced people that are given as comfort. Turn to John chapter 14. We're going to get into the first one this morning. I know I've been talking for 25 minutes and we haven't even started. <laughs> Told you to buckle up. John 14, the first of these not yet fulfilled prophecies that we are going to look at this morning, John 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. There you have it, comfort. And you're going to find out that this is in the middle of a not yet fulfilled prophecy. He's speaking to the disciples and by extension us. Don't let your heart be troubled. Jesus and the disciples are in the upper room and he's giving them a bunch of final instructions. There's chapters of his final instructions as they're, as they're eating there before his death and departure. And he's speaking to them a word of encouragement. Notice he says, he doesn't say that your lives are not going to be troubled, does he? He says, don't let it trouble your heart though. How many of you know that you can rejoice in the midst of adversity? <laughs> Do you know, Louie, that you can face trouble without letting your heart troubled? 
Let not your heart be troubled. No matter what you're going through, no matter who likes you, who doesn't like you, no matter what you didn't have for dinner or what your parents made you eat for dinner. If my kids were here, they need to hear that. Your heart does not have to be troubled. In fact, Jesus' words found here are written as an imperative. That is a command. He says, stop being troubled. Stop it. Quit it. Choose this day to no longer be bothered by the things of the world in your heart. I realize that some of you here may be taking or have taken medication for anxiety and depression, or maybe you know a family member that does. Certainly there are, I will acknowledge, complex factors that affect our mental condition. And while I'm not a doctor, and I would never advise anyone to quit taking medication without a doctor's consent, at the same time, I would urge you to think carefully about the words of Christ considered here. Do not let your heart be troubled. You may think, well, that's, that's overly simplistic, Pastor. But these words are command. Either the words of God are true or they're not. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. I gather by the way that this is worded, by the way Jesus is speaking to us, I gather that we have a choice in the matter. Do not let your heart be troubled. Quit letting your heart be troubled. Choose to not let your heart be troubled. Continuing on, believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, Jesus is giving us promises that he is making on the same level of guarantee as God's word. He's saying, in the way that you believe God the Father, you must believe in me of the things that I'm about to tell you. If you believe in God, and you should be able to believe in God, believe in me. These, again, these words are in an imperative. They're a command. Believe in me. It's urgent. Believe in me as you believe in God. Jesus tells us to go to him with the same level of confidence that we are to go and to give to God. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Now, it's likely you've heard, I know, some of you are disappointed, mine says dwelling places. Some of you probably have memorized or heard a version that says the word mansions, which unfortunately may have left you with the wrong image. The word in the original is monai, which is from the root word, abide. Okay? Have you ever noticed how many times in these couple of chapters John uses the word abide? Let's just look at them. Chapter 14, let's look at the next one, verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me, same word, same root word, in me does his works. Verse 17, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with me and will be in you. Verse 23, the same word that we have for dwelling places or mansions in verse 2, verse 23 of 14 says, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode, Monai, with him. 25, these things I've spoken to you while abiding with you. Chapter 15, verse 4, abide in me and I in you. 
Verse 5, abide in me and I in him. Verse 6, abide in me. Verse 7, abide in me. Verse 9, as a father's loved me, and I also have loved you, abide in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain. That's the word abide. Monet, remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Again, this is where the English often breaks down. I wish we could hear Jesus speaking it in the native tongue, but it's so written beautifully in the Greek. Their context here, Jesus is talking about abiding with the Father, being in him. He's not saying, I'm going to build you this big mansion. It's got this roundabout with a fountain in the middle and four white columns and an in-ground pool in the back. That very well may be the case. Heaven's going to be beautiful. We talked about it in in Sunday school. But that's not what this passage is saying. He's saying, I am going to prepare a place that you can abide with me. But the good thing about this, the problem right now, disciples, is that, that you can abide with me, but only so many of us can fit in this room. It's a little crowded. Have you noticed? Jesus is saying, where I'm going, there's going to be many abodes. I'm going to prepare a place with much abiding, so much abiding so that lots of people can come and be with me. Twelve times in these two chapters, this word means abide and abode. In my Father's house, there is much abiding room. I hope you're getting it. He says where the Father is, there's lots of room. There's room enough for all of you and more than that. It has room enough for everybody. If there wasn't enough room, don't you think that I would have warned you about that? It's not mansions, it's dwellings, it's abidings. He wants us to dwell with him and he wants to dwell with us. He will be our God and we will be his people. If that isn't comforting, I don't know what is. Try this morning to zoom out and put yourself into the bigger picture. The prophet Isaiah wrote that the word of our God stands forever. That's the message of comfort to a people because they had rebelled against God and were displaced and exiled into a foreign land. But we're in the same boat. We sinned, we broke his commandments, we've been displaced and exiled into a foreign land. 1 Peter 2.11 says that we're aliens and strangers. Hebrews 11.13 says that we are strangers and exiles on the earth. Oh, but the word comes forth to you today, I want to dwell with you. I'm making a habitation for you that you can be with me. This place where you are, you stranger, you alien, it's not your permanent place. I'm going to make a place where you can come and be with me forever. Remember what Adam had in the garden? That's what I'm going to give, but I'm going to extend it to everybody. Verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, here's the word of promise to us. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Here the comforting promise of Jesus continues. He said, I will come. Listen, O brother, O sister, O beloved, he's coming again. The word of our God stands forever. That is, he can't not come back. It would be impossible for him to not come back for you. He spoke it into emotion. In the same way that he left, O glory, 
He's coming back again. Why do you stare up into heaven, O men of Galilee? Don't you remember that he told you he's coming back again in the same way in in which he left? He hasn't forsaken you. He isn't missing in action. He's not lost. He's not been kidnapped. He isn't hiding. He hasn't forgotten. He is as sure as the sun will rise, Hosea 6.3 says. As surely as the sun will rise, he will appear. He will surely come to us like the rain. He will surely come to us like the spring showers that water the earth. For the word of the Lord is right. And all of his work is done in truth. The word of our God stands forever. There is nothing that could keep him from coming back. Not a demon, nor the devil, not Congress or climate change. Not the Pope or the President. There is nothing that can keep him from coming back again. Now, if you believe he's coming back, then why do you fear? Why do you slack off? Why do you make excuses? Why don't you serve him? like he's coming back. Why not urgently? Why not now? Why aren't we waiting for him expectantly? Oh, Jesus, that you would come soon. Do you remember when you were a child, you were so excited about going on a vacation that you couldn't sleep the night before? That ever happened to you? Yep. We had a, I I can't remember, I think it was just our camping trip recently, but one of our children was not sleeping well. And they were, I, I believe they were so excited about what was going to be for the next day that they just could not fall asleep. I remember thinking as a kid, we were going to Wisconsin, which was a dreadful drive. It was like 22 hours. And I, I, I was excited. As a kid, that was exciting. I don't know why, but I guess you're resilient then and dumb enough to fall for it. But <laughs> I remember thinking, Dad, I didn't sleep at all last night. And of course, you probably just woke up like five or six times. The beauty with kids is that they roll back over and fall back asleep. When, I don't know if any of you are like this, but when your mind gets going about all the things you have to do in the morning or tomorrow, woo! you better start praying and interceding because there's no way I'm falling asleep within the hour. I'm like making dinner in the kitchen, like, oh, go, you know, starting to read my Bible. Lord, make me tired. Trying all the tricks. My kids, they couldn't sleep. They were so excited. That's how we ought to be with Christ's return. Lord, I can't sleep. I can't wait to see what's going to happen tomorrow. Are you coming back? On the edge of our bed. Oh, God. I'm ready. Is it time to go yet? Are we there yet? Listen, church. His coming is not far off. He himself said it 2,000 years ago. Well, I know that seems like a long time, but on a relative scale, it's not. It's a blink. It's a blink to God. I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. Be encouraged. His word will not fail. We have no reason to fear. We will be with him. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Hear this, O beloved. No amount of pain or suffering or trial or tribulation should ever get in the way and interfere with our excitement of being in His very presence. No matter what you're going through, no matter what comes your way, we should never stop looking up to heaven with eyes that are excited. Say, God, come quickly. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We ought to be fully enveloped with His presence in the things of His Word that are yet to be fulfilled. And it just shows you how frail we are 
and how dumb we are that when we get a little stub toe, spiritually speaking, all we think about is our foot. We get distracted, don't we? The this of the world, the that of the tomorrow. We get our eyes off of Christ and onto the situation. But we ought to put our gaze back onto Him. That sure future we have of His very presence, weeping may last for a night. But with a shout of joy comes in the morning. He will not let us go down to the pit. Sing praise, give thanks to His holy name, for He has turned our mourning into dancing. He is not a man that he should lie. Jesus said that he would return. Don't you believe that he's coming back? Come quickly, Lord. What's he coming back to do? Receive you to himself. I picture here a jealous God. He's not going to share you with anyone else. That's what jealousy is. Fear that someone is Really, the definition, the proper definition is that someone, you're going to sh- have to share something with someone else. Jealousy is, is a reserved right for someone. Being jealous of your spouse is not really liking the at- attention that somebody else is giving to them. And God is jealous over you. He's saying, I'm not going to share any of my chosen ones with the devil. They're just for me. I've made them for me. I'm coming back for you. I want you. Personalize it. He is coming back for me. He loved you before the foundation of the world. He's chosen you to be with Him in His very presence to receive you back to Himself. He wants you, for He loves you. Oh, beloved, bask in the comfort of our God in heaven, desiring you to Himself. The prophecies, these rhemas of the Lord, according to Peter, these spoken promises of Christ Jesus should strengthen our faith. It's hard to see our friends, our family, our loved ones struggle with the uncertainty of death, the unknown of its transition process. But the Apostle Paul reminds us that we don't face these questions in the same way as the world outside of Christ does. They don't have a hope, but we do. We face these moments with a sure and true hope, not a wishful hoping, but a convinced and an established hope. It's the anchor of our soul. Biblical hope is closely related to faith. It looks ahead to the promise, the unrealized future. It's not like saying, I hope the Hokies win a football game this fall. It's like knowing the outcome. It's like re-watching or, re- or replaying the Peach Bowl of, of, what is it, 86, and saying, we already know the outcome. It's a, and with, with great excitement at the end of your seat, watching the things unfold again as you rewatch the game. That's what biblical hope is. We know what's coming our way. We watch with excitement. Look down on verse 25 of chapter, what are we, in 14? Back to 14, verse 25. We're almost done. Verse 25 says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. Jesus is saying, I've given these things to you while in your presence. But the helper, parakletos, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit is going to remind us of the comforting words of Christ Jesus. But listen to this. He can't remind you of things if you never knew them to begin with. Can he? 
in order to know them the first time, you've got to read His Word. Then He'll remind you of them. I don't remember where we were. Verse 26, I'm going to read it again. But the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father comes... Oh, he'll bring to... Remember, it's all that I've said. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Comfort. Not as the world gives do I give. Do not let your heart be troubled. Hmm. It's kind of like we heard that somewhere before, didn't we? It's like a a parenthesis around this whole thing. He says in verse 1, don't let your heart be troubled. Here he says again, verse 27, don't let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Fear has no place in the mind and the heart of the believer. Verse 28, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe. Here's the point in the purpose of prophecy. He has told us before they take place so that we can have faith and be encouraged when it does take place. There are things that are yet to be fulfilled. They are told about to us for our comfort, that as we watch the things of the earth unfold the way that they're going to unfold, the world has blinders on. But we that are in Christ Jesus, if we have read his word and we're familiar with his word, the Holy Spirit's going to remind us of the things that he spoke to us, that we would take comfort. Oh, yeah. He's coming back for me. Prophecy is about God activating the faith of believers through his word that endures forever. We trust that he will fulfill all future prophecies down to the most microscopic detail because he has never failed. God is faithful to his word. The word of our God endures forever. Now, this place that he's preparing for us, I want you to understand that he's presently ministering in intercession for us. He's keeping us for that day. The Bible tells us that Jesus has gone ahead of us to open up the way for us. He is the forerunner. That's Hebrews 6.20 if you want to read about it yourself. We don't have time to get there this morning. In the other Gospels, Jesus is recorded by commanding Peter and John to go ahead to prepare the Passover in the upper room. Do you remember? He says, go ahead and prepare it. I'm going to be there with you shortly. Get the room ready. Make all the arrangements. We're going to have a Passover meal there together. Okay? Picture this. This was custom. This was a custom for someone to go on ahead and get the meal and the the preparations ready, find a place to, to stay and lodge for the night. And it's in this context that Jesus says, I am going to prepare a place for you. Right now, he's making arrangements for our arrival in the same way that Peter and John did that night of the Passover. He was speaking in terms that they could understand. He's saying, just as I commissioned you out to prepare this room, I am going to prepare my Father's house for you, that you would abide with me in my very presence. Now listen, he is going to prepare an abode for us. And with 100% certainty, I'm telling you that he is coming back to get you to take you to that place again. This isn't going to be like traveling to a foreign country where you don't know the language, the geography, the people, the customs. It's like going to a familiar place, a comfortable place to a father that's going to welcome you and he loves you and he's going to bring you into the place of your brothers and sisters and it's going to be a big reunion. 
I don't know how many of you travel long distances. You ever have to make a place of lodging? My, my dad's gotten into this thing of, I think it's Priceline, where you can name your price to or whatever it is, where he'll kind of just wing it and, you know, he'll drive and figure out how far he wants to go and then he'll look up on his phone someplace to stay and he'll get some random hotel and they'll tell him, you know, go here for this price. I, on the other hand, I like to have reservations because I don't like the thought of showing up to a hotel and it being full. We went camping. We got reservations, didn't we? This is how it is with heaven. It's that we have a reservation in our name. But not only does the world let you down with your reservations, anyone ever had a lost reservation? Scary times. Jesus himself is the one who made the reservations, and he holds the computer system key card, doesn't he? He's the one who made the reservation. He promises that if you believe in him, that you already have a reservation in heaven. And Jesus himself is the one who booked it. And not only that, it gets better. He's coming to lead you by hand there. You ever get off the highway, it's dark, you're in an unfamiliar town, you're listening to Siri, shout out directions. Oh, back in the old days when you didn't have your smartphones, right? You're looking up on this map, you're trying to follow directions, the little signs, we miss a sign, and then you don't know which way the hotel is when you get off your exit. Jesus is saying, I am going to take you personally there. I'm going to walk you. If I lead you by hand, you're not going to miss it. It's impossible for you to miss the exit. Oh, beloved, when he is the way, you will never miss a turn. Bask in these not yet fulfilled words of comfort. Let these marinate in your spirit, man, until you give him the shout of praise that he is due. I will come again and receive you to myself.